the last of the seven factors of enlightenment which we have not yet um, mentioned and discussed is equanimity now just to recapitulate the factors of enlightenment start out with mindfulness then the investigation of phenomena then energy then three factors of the meditative absorption the, uh, uh, first the, um, the light, the light of sensation then tranquility, concentration the last one, equanimity now equanimity is often also mentioned as the factor of the fourth jhana the fourth absorption however it doesn't seem to conform to the experience because in the fourth uh, meditative absorption it would be quite it would be impossible to be aware of even mindedness the experience is more that of stillness However, equanimity is fostered and cultivated through the experience of the fourth jhana. So, it is more an emotional state rather than the state of the, of the absorption. Although, of course, stillness is also equanimity, one wouldn't be aware of that. The equanimity, however, that does arise from that stillness has many um, causes and the causes are all inside causes except one, which is an emotional cause. So we'll have a look first at the inside causes which arouse equanimity. Now, equanimity means, first of all, even-mindedness. And even-mindedness means that no matter what happens, one has the same reaction. In other words, the inner happiness and stability does not waver. Obviously, a very desirable state. Equanimity is considered to be the... uh, jewel, the crown jewel of all emotions it is the one emotion and the word emotion does not necessarily mean that one's going up and down like a joyo what people usually do with their emotions equanimity is the, is the emotion where the heart <coughs> is not flustered and the mind does not waver primarily based on insight it can go a different way where it's based on the purification of the heart and then the the, um, companion to equanimity is compassion now if we look at it that way we can see that the work one has to do 
is one of the purification of emotion so that the heart quality of love becomes unlimited, immeasurable, and doesn't have any cause or condition behind it, but it is unconditioned. And when that has been accomplished, then, of course, equanimity, coupled with compassion, becomes the factor of enlightenment because the heart can no longer be affected by any negative response. The release through the heart or the liberation through the heart, this is, this is the name for that, Chetavimuti, and it also results in, event, in uh, on that pathway incomplete insight. It is the pathway which is chosen through the jhanas and through loving-kindness. If we go the pathway through the jhanas and develop loving-kindness to its ultimate, then this is the heart's release, which in its wake also has the complete insight and the release of through wisdom. These are the two different ways of being liberated, either through the heart or through the um, understanding, through insight, but they're only the different pathways. Having been accomplished, they both um, join and have one result then. So equanimity, in order to be truly equanimity has to have compassion with it. Now, how do we make this happen? The first thing that we need to do is to have compassion with ourselves. We are the one that we are most acquainted with. We know ourselves best. And most of the time we don't like what we see. But that's only judgment and also negativity because don't like has no equanimity in it it's a negative appraisal so if we can have a look at ourselves without all this judgment and just have a bit of compassion for the difficulties we encounter in this life and with that compassion arouse a bit of appreciation for any effort we are making we will have a chance to do the same for other people. In order to find this compassion for ourselves, we have to find the dukkha in ourselves. Now, not just when things go wrong. Everybody knows dukkha when things go wrong. Everybody suffers. But that's not the point. The point is to recognize the fact that being a human being means having dukkha. And that does not entail becoming unhappy about it, which is a constant misunderstanding. Because if we release the heart through loving kindness and compassion, it is a beautiful feeling within 
And yet, it also includes understanding, the understanding that the existence itself will present unsatisfactoriness over and over again. So that's not a cause for unhappiness, but it is a cause for insight. And as we see Dukkha as a um, universal aspect of the whole of existence, we don't take it upon ourselves that we are personally suffering. There's no need to do that. It's just a general condition which prevails in existence and as it prevails in existence it can actually become the one spur that we need to practice properly. If we of course start thinking that it's terrible, well of course then there's judgment and dislike in it and equanimity doesn't have a chance to arise then. So the first thing is compassion for ourselves, understanding it's difficult to be a human being appreciate the effort that one itself is making and recognizing the universality of Dukkha. Nothing is more important than recognizing that it's not individual. Anybody who thinks that they're individually suffering, that individually everything is going wrong, individually they're having these difficulties because, and then this long list of because's, hasn't seen the Buddhist teaching at all hasn't seen even the path yet individual suffering that's the world's idea I'm having a hard time my problem is and so on that's not at all spiritual practice spiritual practice is understanding that we're all in the same boat and it's a very leaky boat too and we're all sitting in it so when we see that, then we also have a feeling of togetherness. We don't have to um, emphasize it. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to make attempts at it. We can feel it. We're all sitting in the same leaky boat, and so we're all together in this. And when we have a feeling of togetherness, then compassion that we have for ourselves is automatically compassion for others because where's the difference? Everybody is sitting in this boat which is constantly on the point of sinking and everybody is constantly on the point of drowning. So what's the, the difference between oneself and others? All one can possibly do is give assistance to others by showing them that this is a law of nature that we're all subject to and that there is a possibility of getting out but not by plugging the leaks that's what everybody's trying to do just putting in little plugs here and there constantly it's a constant endeavor which never works and um, we're usually quite busy with that sort of thing so if we feel together if we feel that we are no different then and nothing special 
that's also quite important. Then compassion is not so difficult. Now when compassion comes up towards oneself and towards others, then the even-mindedness in the face of difficulties is also easier. Because we have seen that difficulties are the law of nature. And we have aroused compassion already. So with those two as our support systems, we can then stay quite at ease and remain even-minded in the face of whatever happens. And sometimes even maybe laugh at ourselves, a bit of um, sense of humor in the face of the difficulties which exist in life is very helpful because it takes away a little bit of that um, problematic seriousness that everything is important. To tell you the truth, nothing is important. Because it's all changing and moving. But we make it very important. We think of things as very important. And the more we have that idea, the more stressed and tense we feel. The more everything is important. also in meditation relaxing and letting go is the, is the key word eh? so the uh, beginning aspect of equanimity is compassion understanding of dukkha and that uh, exercising that towards oneself and others the next and then equanimity always coupled with compassion has a chance to become a characteristic. It doesn't have to be constantly re-aroused. It's something that remains more steadily within. This means, this particular pathway means that we are primarily focusing on the cultivation of our heart quality. Now, obviously, the heart quality has to be cultivated by everybody, but one can have more emphasis on one aspect of the teaching or on another, depending upon one's own tendencies and also depending upon one's own skills. An analytical mind will always try to go towards insight. A mind which is um, by nature embracing and um, more inclined to emotions might automatically veer towards the cultivation of the heart. Both come to the same point. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It's called the near enemy because it's similar, looks similar, but it doesn't have compassion in it. It's very simple to know the difference. Equanimity has compassion in it and indifference doesn't. Indifference is cold and it's hard and it doesn't have the cultivation or the uh, uh, release of the heart in it at all. It's um, created 
through a thinking process, which is as wrong and absurd as most of our thinking processes are, and the result is unpleasant for oneself. We ourselves have to be able to distinguish between indifference and equanimity. Only the person themselves can distinguish uh, between those two. The other, the other person would feel it that there's no compassion in it, but it sometimes can be um, mistaken, the one mistaken for the other. It's not um, a way of practice. It's one of the escape routes which we try to have and which, of course, don't work because they are dead in streets. Now, there are three instructions by the Buddha how to use equanimity so that it will become a factor of enlightenment. Now, equanimity, obviously, is something that we all possess at times when things don't go too badly. Some people, of course, have very little of that, very little equanimity. They're constantly on this yo-yo up and down and uh, <coughs> their inner life, their inner um, constituents within themselves seem to be very volatile. It's um, also caused, of course, by wrong thinking because thinking is a sense contact, the sixth one, and all, thing, all sense contact produce feelings and if we have a lot of wrong thoughts wrong in a sense of exciting, worrying uh, fear inducing uh, negative resisting, rejecting hating, disliking uh, any of these thoughts, if we have a lot of those obviously the feelings which we have within ourselves are most unpleasant and for an equanimity doesn't have much of a chance within that. So there are, that is um, one way that the Buddha recommended to use the thinking process in order to have more equanimity is to think of oneself as a skeleton. Now if a skeleton is sitting here, Everything's already done with, isn't it? It's all done, all gone. You know, the whole business that we're so worried about. Everything's finished. There's just a skeleton here, like our friend over there. So everybody's sitting here like a skeleton. So what's there to worry about? Also, the only thing to worry about now is rebirth. And that's done with already. The karma has been made. So if we can think of ourselves, as a skeleton, it is possible for some people to have, to arouse equanimity within themselves because they can see that this time span, just to talk about the time span, from the thing that they're upset about, fearful about, worried about, angry about, whatever it is, is very short. No time at all and everybody that one knows is going to be a skeleton. 
when one gets a little older, then most of one's friends very soon are skeletons. And uh, so the whole thing becomes absurd. Whatever people are worrying about and uh, discussing and getting frightened about is a total absurdity. I mean, skeletons don't get worried. They just crumble to dust. That's one of the injunctions of the Buddha to accompany in order to to arouse equanimity to think of oneself as a skeleton. I'm just looking to see if I can find the spot where he says that. Here we are. Here one cultivates the fact of enlightenment that is equanimity accompanied by the idea of the skeleton that is based on seclusion, on dispassion, on cessation and ends in self-surrender. And all of them can be used that way, all of the facts of enlightenment, but particularly equanimity. So here's one way of using the, um, the thought process. Instead of thinking of oneself as such a permanent entity and instead of thinking of oneself as such an important um, center of the universe or thinking of oneself as having to get it all right and perfect and doing it and all the rest of it, skeleton. It's, uh, it's in accordance with the Buddha's injunction to practice the five daily recollections every single day and they are <coughs> the first three are I'm of the nature to decay to be diseased and I'm of the nature to die every single day why? not in order to um, worry about or anything like that but to remind oneself what can be so important that even mindedness can never enter the um, inner resources that we have um, particularly reinforced if we can arouse even-mindedness and particularly of course in the face of difficulties I mean it's not so, not so difficult to become even-minded when nothing is happening most people manage that quite well but when something is happening So that's the first way of using one's mind. Now then, the second way, in order to have or to practice equanimity, it was also mentioned here in this word I just read, to be accompanied, equanimity, to accompany that with the thought of self-surrender. Now, self-surrender is an absolute necessity for meditation. I have mentioned that several times, and I've said to start with three things, one of them being the determination to give oneself completely. Well, self-surrender 
means that we are able, at least now, for instance, in the meditation, to give up our wishes and desires for the time being and surrender ourselves to that situation, which in meditation is the concentration or the um, absorption states. Now, when in other instances, in daily life, if we surrender to the situation that has arisen, we don't have any desire to change it. It just is. And we go with it. We surrender to whatever is happening and when we don't put up the resistance against it, obviously there's no worry, no restlessness, no anxiety. Because one's gone along with it. What ha- one has surrendered, the self-assertion, one has surrendered the self, the ideas that the self has, and has just noticed and noted the situation as it is and gone along with it without trying to have it one's own way. The trouble is with having it one's own way is that we practically never know what's good for us. Extremely difficult. We have ideas, naturally, but ideas are just ideas and viewpoints. The reason why we never know what's really good for us is because We're all looking at everything from the standpoint of me in the middle. But because there are, on this little planet of ours, five billion me's all in the middle, it never works. Always some me is having wanting to have what this me wants to have. It's all the cause for the opposite of peacefulness and even-mindedness. So if we can surrender that idea of the me that the way it wants it, the way it has it all figured out, that's the way it should be, and just go along, go with the flow, which doesn't mean to become inactive. It's one of the mistakes that uh, the uh, flower power movement made. They thought that going along with the flow means to be inactive. I mean, we we have all sorts of wrong thinking. So, if we can do that, and no resistance, we just do. As we go along with that and have no resistance, the mind does not get disturbed. It just stays the same it was. So, self-surrender is probably, we can say, the most important aspect of arousing equanimity. Now, if one would like to have equanimity, if one is sick and tired of this yo-yo affair, up and down, and particularly of the down part, most people are quite happy with the up part, but the down part is the one that bothers them, and you know what has gone up has to go down. So the yo-yo never stays on top, so always falls down again. So if one's sick and tired of that, this is a thing to practice. Now, 
we need to have introspection, recognition of ourselves, in order to know that our emotions are playing tricks on us. If we have enough introspection, we will know that. And as soon as we know that the emotions are doing all these things, which are not always pleasant, as soon as we know that, the next step is to know that that isn't really the way one wants to live. Now, a lot of people try to counteract the emotional turmoil that exists within them by having more of the nice and beautiful experiences through the senses, which includes thinking, which also includes, of course, the mind can do other things and think. It can visualize, it can fantasize, it can make up stories, it dreams, it might have all sorts of things. I mean, we have all experienced that in meditation, I presume, all the things that the mind can do. It has quite a a repertoire, and it's one of the best actors ever. It uh, puts up stories, and they sound so believable that uh, one is actually taken in by the whole thing although one one really knows better. If we use our intelligent mind objectively and investigate, we do know better. All of us. But that's not so much fun. It's much nicer to have the mind play all these games and that gets us out of the emotional turmoil. Of course, it gets us back in again as soon as we stop this but uh, because we have found some sort of an escape hatch, we feel that, well, maybe we could, uh, you know, widen the escape hatch and escape permanently through this. The escape ideas that people make up are so innumerable, it's impossible to explain how many there are. None of them work, of course, because the escape is completely limited and always um, the escape is always um, bound uh, up and uh, never successful because the ego stops the whole thing. The ego wants to escape. But by wanting to escape, it of course wants to have it all nice right there where it is. So it doesn't, it can never work. The whole thing is an absurdity of thought processes. And these absurdity of thought processes will have to be penetrated one day. And they are most easily penetrated through the concentrated mind and the meditative mind, which doesn't get convoluted and stays straight on the straight and narrow. It appears to be the most difficult thing for, for humanity to do, to keep the mind on the straight and narrow. Actually, it's the easiest thing to do. Because if we really stay on that, we can see that all the other uh, highways and byways that we like to use for the mind are nothing but traps, where there are constant traffic accidents. And if we see that once, we'll probably make an attempt to stay with the mind on the straight and narrow. Now that means that we will actually try to practice 
the letting go of the ideas that we have how this we, this person that has this me inside can gain and get happiness and turn that around and try to figure out how we can give and give out happiness and with that thought in mind first surrender happens now it doesn't mean that we're constantly going to give somebody happiness it doesn't mean that at all that would be a result it means that the thought process changes from I want to get I want to have give me a gimme attitude which is of course total everywhere changes to the giving to others attitude and as soon as that attitude has changed then self-surrender becomes possible and when self-surrender becomes possible then enlightenment becomes possible in the first stage equanimity becomes possible because if one keeps on giving and doesn't want there are no expectations and no disappointments or at least very few and uh, depending on how much the giving is possible and the uh, desire aspect of wanting to get is so much less that the dukkha is much less meditation happens also if one doesn't want to get but wants to give in this instance gives oneself no, no no holding back meditation is possible if one wants to get something out of meditation well then one gets disappointment just giving oneself to it but that means also in one's attitude and thinking process that that is turned around the Buddha always said that we're looking at everything upside down 180 degrees turned around the whole aspect of life in ourselves everything 180 degrees turned around this one thinks that one should do something about it now that self-surrender is the most important um, aspect of the thought process which arouses and accompanies equanimity the reason I am talking about equanimity at such length is the fact that it is the only emotion the only emotional state which is a factor of enlightenment it's not love it's not compassion nothing like that it's equanimity which is a factor of enlightenment the only emotion and it is therefore so important to practice and it doesn't mean that one can't live ordinarily it's always so often misunderstood life goes on just the way it always has the reactions are different that what jumps out is different because the whole attitude the whole viewpoint has changed
Now, it is sometimes uh, in our Western psychology and therapy considered to be very important that we establish a self-identity and some people obviously have to do that. What is forgotten in all this um, uh, therapy and therapeutic uh, procedure is the fact that this establishment of the self-identity is not meant to be permanent. There isn't anything that's permanent. The establishment of the self-identity is necessary because we can't get rid of that which we haven't even found yet. If I want to get rid of this clock and it's hidden here and I can't find it, it's very difficult for me to get rid of it. In fact, impossible. But if I have it in my hand solidly and I can feel it, I can see it, I can touch it, I know this is my clock. And I really want to get rid of it because it's a bother. Then I can hand it over or drop it, open my hand and drop it. But as long as it's hidden here under this blanket, I haven't got a chance, have I? So the establishment of the self-identity is absolutely essential, but for one reason only, namely to get rid of it. And that's, of course, in Western psychology, um, not mentioned, but on the other hand, one must be quite grateful that some of this uh, work that is being done at least establishes that um, self-feeling in people who have a difficulty with that and therefore give them a chance then to work further. Self-surrender is the main change in consciousness that we need in order to be equanimous. From the very simple understanding that all wanting and wishing and all resisting and rejecting is Dukkha. Now obviously we can't do this overnight. We can't just make up our mind, okay, from now on no more desires, no more rejections. That's um, unrealistic and not possible. But what it means is that we could start working on it by checking out the things that we do resist and reject, the things that we do want so badly and can't get, whether they're permanent, whether they are actually the answer to the yearning in the heart for peace and harmony or whether there are another one of those stop gaps where we try to uh, plug the leak for a while so that the boat doesn't drown yet or doesn't sink yet I should say we can we have enough intelligence to check that out the um, all our desires, all our rejections, all our resistances, not getting what we want and so forth, are all the causes for our lack of peacefulness, our lack of equanimity. They're the causes for our um, 
upheavals our emotional turmoil and the emotional turmoil of course makes it impossible to see straight because we are drowned in this emotional turmoil and that's all we can see so we don't know anymore where the right road is we're totally subjective instead of being objective we can't see ourselves at all so the um, the answer to that is to not forget that the um, not forget the impermanence not forget the um, the fact that that's what we are searching for is already there within our own heart and mind it's all there because if it weren't how could we ever find it is somebody going to come and stick it in there for us it's impossible there's not an opening there where we can stick it in and sew it up again and it's just not possible but yet we have that absurd idea we're going to go somewhere and find it somewhere and maybe some other person is going to give it to us how is such a thing possible momentary feelings yes but that's what we really want the peacefulness is there if it wasn't within us we could never have a hope of finding it so there's one other thing in fact there are two other things which are um, concerned see now I've lost my clock are concerned with our equanimity and the first one we have already spoken about but I will mention it again because it's a very important aspect of this particular uh, mental st- uh, emotional state and that is what are called the five noble powers we have already discussed them but I'll just briefly mention them that we can see the delightful in the ugly that we can see the ugly and the delightful that we can see the ugly in delightful and ugly that we can see delightful and ugly and delightful and then one day having done it all we don't have to do anything anymore we just see everything as being one and the same which means that we remember when we look at something or someone that that person consists of the same 32 parts of the body that we do that they're all bits and pieces put together and covered by skin that it's just as impermanent as everything else that our own emotions and that person's emotions are impermanent and unreliable that only the enlightened one is totally reliable and totally lovable and an enlightened one is not a person but it's an enlightenment principle so there's nothing to want and nothing to have and that things are of the same nature decay and uh, complete uh, disintegration and the same for people and that there's nothing nothing in the world that one has to have the only thing that is really important is to give everything because as the less one and that doesn't mean that one has to give all one's money away it just means to give all those ideas of mine away the less one carries around with oneself the less of a burden one has the more self 
the more desires, the heavier the whole thing. It's like this dreadfully heavy suitcase. We might either have to give it away, send it away, or throw it away. It's impossible to carry all that stuff around. And it's the same with one's shoulders, carrying all these ideas around about self and wanting to have. The only answer to that is to give oneself away. And with that, we can see that if we see both sides, that's what the five noble powers are, to see both sides in everything, the desirable and the undesirable. And every, everything has that, the desirable and the undesirable. There's nothing to get excited about. It just is. Getting excited about things is always due to the fact that the ego is looking for a support system. Now, obviously, ego will always look for a support system as long as it exists. It will only stop looking for it when there isn't any ego, but we don't have to be so frantic about it. I mean, we could take it a little easier about the support system. Sometimes we notice it and sometimes we don't notice it. It's this frantic wanting and hanging on to it which makes life difficult. So we have compassion, skeleton, self-surrender and as the last one and also the five noble powers which concern also impermanence and as the last one which as a companion which is a companion for equanimity the direction of cessation now the direction of cessation only comes about with plenty of practice one could say we've been practicing a while. The direction of cessation gives the mind a clear-cut pathway. The mind knows all it wants is to get out of Dukkha and not by getting something, but by getting rid of. And when the mind has a clear-cut direction for cessation, then it is much easier to arouse equanimity. Obviously, that doesn't mean that we have already reached cessation, cessation of all dukkha, it means. And it means cessation of the self-illusion. It doesn't mean necessarily that we have reached any of that, but the direction of mind is sufficient to give the mind this ability not to want so passionately and not to reject so passionately. Because if all one wants is to get out of this uh, very um, unsatisfactory existence, then one isn't going to try and get oneself deeper in by wanting more or rejecting more. And this is what we're doing. If we have already gained as much that much understanding that we do want to get out. Um, if we get passionately involved with anything, either wanting it very badly or wanting to get rid of it very badly, we are putting ourselves deeper in to the rounds of rebirth, rounds of samsara, where everything comes again and again. 
we are embedding ourselves more solidly because of the fact that our natural progression of contact feeling has immediate reaction in craving and clinging so that there isn't even a moment of um, interaction between them so that we can't even see it. Now, if you remember, the pen arising, worldly dependent arising, our only pathway out is between feeling and craving, which means between the feeling that we get and then the wanting to keep the pleasant and getting rid of the unpleasant. Now, every time our passions are aroused, we are more solidly in engulfed in the craving which is followed by clinging, which is, which is followed by becoming and so forth. And this is what we're after. We want to become something. So it's just the other way around which brings equanimity. Equanimity comes from the direction of I do not wish to reinforce craving and clinging. I want to loosen the bonds. So if we have these as our companions, compassion, our own death, the death of everything that we know, self-surrender and cessation as a direction, equanimity has a chance to arise and be honest, be real. Oneself knows it, others know it too. Equanimity does not mean suppressing anything. It it means it's a real reaction. It's something that comes out of the of one's innermost being and it's based on a feeling of a secure knowledge. This is what the Buddha says about equanimity. It's based on, an, on knowledge that there's nothing worth getting upset about. It's always worth doing something but there's nothing worth getting upset about. It's much too fleeting. It's much too short a time that we have here on this planet and it's all insignificant. And that might be also a very helpful way of looking at one's own upset. Is it really significant? Five billion people on a small planet. Is that what I'm getting upset about really significant? Does anybody really care? Except I who want to get this. And if we can see ourselves in that context, it might help us to see it in a more um, realistic way where we don't have uh, such an exaggerated idea about the importance of all the things that we want, want to get rid of. That might be sufficient on the seventh factor of enlightenment, equanimity. If you have any questions, this is the time to ask them.
absolutely need to be practiced so that equanimity does become a real self. Certainly in, in, embedded in them and included in them. And in one way, the Buddha says that through the, the development of loving kindness, the heart becomes released and therefore the heart meaning the release meaning the desires and the rejections aren't there and then equanimity does arise but if equanimity arises through insight then the heart is released as a result of that okay what else Is this quite clear what you've just heard or is it all uh, somewhere up in the sky? Hmm? It's clear to me. No, okay. <laughs> I just had a question about uh, this in regard to giving, giving in or giving, uh, going along with the situation that one may find out or want to go with anything. And the discrimination between going along with something that is unwholesome that one may also have resistance to and how to detect <coughs> excuse me, how to detect the difference between, you know, giving oneself to a situation that is unwholesome and giving oneself to a situation that one just has a I'm trying to see what, what these two situations are. One is unwholesome and the other one one has a resistance to oh because the ego is resisting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And how to discriminate. How to discriminate yeah. Yes. Well I think I have um, uh, mentioned that once before. There is a sort of a checkpoint that we can use. Uh if we are not wanting to give ourselves to a certain situation and dislike and hate arises, it's obviously an egotistical reaction. But if one sees something that is unwholesome and doesn't, one doesn't wish to continue with that and no hate or dislike arises, then it is not, the ego isn't involved. The ego is always either having hate or greed. Wouldn't you have a reaction of dislike to unwholesomeness? No. No. I mean, suppose you you see something... Not for the enlightened one. Of course we could. But when we're talking about the enlightened state, okay? Right. Okay. You see, where it's hard for me because you see something and you think this is bad and uh, you have a judgment about it, doesn't necessarily mean, though, does it, that it 
it's just, I mean, the ego obviously is involved, but it still could be on that side. And your perspective could still be correct. Your reason Your perception could be correct, but a person who has practiced sufficiently and has been able to have the results of that practice can see the unwholesomeness in the situation without any dislike. It's just unwholesome. The two don't have to follow. Unwholesome is unwholesome. Dislikes, dislikes. The two don't have to join up. They always do in people where the ego has you know, the say. But if the ego hasn't got anything to say, well, who's going to dislike anything? The clarity of mind sees the unwholesomeness. A clear mind is one that isn't bothered by emotions anyway. But it doesn't have to dislike. It sees it quite clearly and says, oh, <laughs> that's the way it is. And that's all. But that is the, the ideal state, right? I'm was uh, trying to give the different points of um, practice which will, uh, you know, take one to that state. But the ideal state is that, you know, unwholesomeness is unwholesomeness. Does that answer your question, Stephen? Yeah, and also while you were talking, I, I saw a bit more too. I think it's, I think what I was referring to is similar to what Barbara was talking about, and that that is, you know, as one practices more and sees undesirable things in oneself, and you know, a lot of them are habitual, been going on for you know a long time, and I think it was that that one sees one's own impurities, and when one sees that, it's a, there's a dislike to that. And you know, then then there's obviously a bit of comfort there, and and it's it seems to me that the giving, what you were talking about about giving oneself, is is giving oneself then to the practice of, of dropping that resistance, even to the to the reaction of one's own impurity. The formula is recognition, yeah. no blame, change. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It's really simple to know. It's not easy to do. But as one sees the impurities in oneself, one should rejoice that one has finally become clear enough and objective enough to see them. Until that point, only everybody else has seen them. Now we finally see them ourselves. So that's it. <laughs> It's a day that's a red letter day. <laughs> and that's the first day of one's life where one can start to do something about them. Only people who start seeing their own impurities are those who can practice. If one can't see them, one can't practice. And if one dislikes them, one also can't practice. Because that dislike always uh, encourages one to cover them up, to not know them so so well. There's always something that one would like to do. Either one would like to justify, one would like to uh, excuse them, one would like to blame somebody, one would always like to do something about it when one blames. 
But the red letter day arises when one sees them and says, finally, now I can do something. It's a really wonderful day. And in ordinary practice for most people, there is a time in the practice when one has the idea that oneself has all the impurities and nobody else has. Now that's uh, a, a while goes on like that. Then after that comes the idea everybody has all the impurities, including oneself. Nobody has anything that's worthwhile looking at. And then the next thing that happens is that one forgets about everybody else and sees only one's own impurities constantly and is constantly trying to see where something can be rectified. Now that's a very good state actually, but it can become obsessive. And that's where loving kindness to oneself has to enter the picture. Because if that obsession with one's own impurities arises, one can very easily, as you just said Stephen, start disliking that very much. And that's why the loving kindness, the heart relief, has to join up with that insight which has arisen so that there is a balance, checks and balances. There has to be a balance. And that balance then makes one sit quite happily on one's pillow and say, well, I've got all these impurities, but I can also meditate. All right, let's meditate. And then one can see the impurities again with um, more even-minded reaction where one sees them not with hate and with a kind of wish to push them out but one is willing to wait patiently that they subside that's a very important moment to wait patiently till those impurities subside anyone who practices will have them subside that's a guarantee a Buddha gave it that guarantee but one has to have patience one can't push because if one pushes it's also an unpleasant situation and it makes unpleasant situations bring up more impurities so it's recognition no blame change and it's a red letter day when we finally see them and then when we get obsessed by them then loving kindness has to be very strongly practiced. Okay, anything else? Any other obsessions, impurities, (laughs) (laughs) commentaries? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and see all the emotions that cause difficulties. See the desires and the dislikes, 
the hopes and the plans, the worries and the fears, the future and the past, the wanting, the uncertainties, the craving for security. See them all, any of these or any others, and recognize them for what they are, enemies of your own happiness. And now let compassion arise in yourself, for yourself, embracing the whole of your being with compassion for the difficulties which are inherent in the human life. Fill yourself with compassion. Surround yourself with it. Feel the balming effect as compassion fills you and surrounds you, all those emotions in the heart which create havoc can no longer be entertained. Compassion only. Will be the heart's center. And now have this same compassion for the person sitting nearest you in this room. He or she is having the same difficulties, maybe with different names, but creating the same turmoil. Give your compassion fully, unstintingly to him or her.
And now let the compassion from your heart enter into the hearts of everyone here, everyone having the same dukkha. Let compassion be your gift to everyone here, filling each person, surrounding each person, knowing the connection between yourself and everyone else, the oneness which is caring for everybody alike. Now think of your parents and think of their difficulties and let your compassion reach out to them, filling them, surrounding them, giving them the gift of your heart. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Think of their difficulties. Give them your compassion. Let them feel that you care for them and that you feel with them. Think of all your friends and know their difficulties, their disharmony in the heart. Give them 
your whole heart full of compassion only being concerned with them Think of all the people whom you meet here and there, neighbors, colleagues at work, people you meet on your travels, in the shops, in the offices, wherever it may be. Recognize everybody's dukkha. Embrace them with your compassion, giving yourself fully. If there's anyone in your life with whom you have difficulties, think of that person's difficulties instead of your own. And uh, have compassion fully and completely, filling him or her with that compassion. Let compassion pour out of your heart like a golden stream that touches everything and everyone where it flows. Let it flow far and wide. 
to all beings, human or otherwise, to nature, to our environment, to our earth, our sky, our moon and our stars and our sun, to those beings we can see and those we can't. Existence is difficult. Let compassion flow. The more you give, the more you'll have. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the ease and the harmony and the peacefulness that arise out of compassion. Be completely covered and permeated with that ease and peacefulness. beings everywhere have compassion for each other. <laughs> 